Ladies and gentlemen, I am Michael Joseph. And I am Adam Michael, and we are 1990 what? Your 1990s rock and alternative music podcast. Mostly 90s music, but we will be discussing all things 90s from toys to everything. You might hear something from like 1988. 1990 what? 1994, 1999. Who knows? Everything nostalgic about the 90s is what you're going to hear with us, please. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good day, folks. Maybe I can catch some contact drunk off of you. Yeah, I guzzled that first. You, you really did, though. I was like, I have a job interview tomorrow. I need beer. Yes. That's how we prep for job interviews. Get real oh drunk the night before. It's like it's like brief moments of my life where I can be happy with myself is when I'm really drunk. Yeah. And then I sober up, though, and I'm like, I'm the worst. Yeah, and then there's the crushing realization that... I have a job interview that I'm going to bomb and I'm never going to get out of this job. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's life. Life's great. Welcome to Rock Candy. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to our wonderful lives and our wonderful jobs. Welcome to the one thing in our lives that we don't hate and we actually really enjoy. <laughs> Rock Candy Podcast. <laughs> Thanks for joining us here. Sorry to bring you down a little bit. Uh, you know, we're just we're just making life what it is. But for now, welcome to your weekly sweet treats of stories and crazy tales from the wild world of music. Yeah, we got a wild one tonight. We do. We are your hosts. I am Maggie. I am Ashley. And this week we are talking about the one and only... Nina mm. Simone. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, she has a crazy story that I did not realize was as crazy as it was. Right. Until I decided to... Uh, do her story but um it's a good one it's an interesting one yeah well she, nina simone i feel like you're like because of the time that she came up in mm-hmm. you're like assuming all right there's gonna be some stuff but from the sounds of it it sounds like way deeper than what you would initially yeah. think yeah, on yeah, yeah, the surface yeah yeah and uh i think this is a good person to end our black history month on yeah um, cause not only was she a musician, she was also, a a really prolific activist mm. and she did a lot for the black community in the sixties and seventies, but she also had a pretty tragic story. Yeah. So, and it had a lot to do with mental illness and all that shit. Oh. So we'll get into all of that. We will. But first let's talk about beer. Well, this week we are drinking from against the grain. Again, for, for the second Week in, row, week in a row, because you didn't even realize. Yeah, but I mean, like they've been doing good with giving us inspiration, I guess. Anyway, we're here drinking Show Nuff. Yep, which is a pretty. It's a pretty basic lager, nice standard. It's a golden ale. Is it golden ale? <laughs> it's a golden ale. Son of a. <laughs> I'm just looking Almost at my glass of it. So close, but it's a good session beer. It's, yeah, it's a good one to drink a lot of on a nice, cool summer day cool summer day or like a warm summer day cool summer night how about that <laughs> like you know it was like 76 all day and then it hit like 55 at night yeah this is the beer you want yeah and like you're out like the back patios are just opening up <sighs> guys i really want it to be spring i'm gonna <laughs> die <laughs> winter is almost over february is just about over don't worry about it i know but i need it i need it to be done now you'll be fine <laughs> 
You'll get through it. No, I won't. Anyway, distract me with tales from Ms. Simone. All right. All right. So Nina Simone, of course, is not her real name. She was born Eunice Kathleen Wayman on February 21st, 1933. Pisces! Pisces! Only a few days before you. Only a few days and several decades. Several decades. (laughs) But if she were still alive, she would have just turned 86 years old. Oh. Yeah. Oh. That's not even, I mean, that's like... That's We're like, like that's not even that old. But now I'm like, that's not even that old. <laughs> no, I don't think it is either. But anyway, she was born in 1933 in, I believe it's Tryon, North Carolina. It's T R Y O N. Tryon. It's Tryon, real hard. <laughs> Especially in 1933. She was the sixth out of eight children. Woof. Born to a mother that was a minister and a father that was a handyman. She started playing piano at age three. Performing at church where her mom works. Oh, that's nice. One day, two white women that attended the church saw Eunice perform at a church recital and decided to mentor her. They gave her piano lessons, concentrating on classical music like Bach and Mozart, and funded her musical education since her family couldn't afford it. Oh, okay. That's nice. She experienced racism early on living in her southern town. You don't say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. 1940s Southern Town? No. Mm. No. Mm. (laughs) It's like fucking Holocaust deniers. (laughs) Racism in the South in the 40s. What are you talking about? Not in my town. Concentration camps? Never. (laughs) It's a lie. But here she had to literally cross the railroad tracks to get from the black side of town to the white side for her lessons. It was literally separated by a railroad track. Oh, that's a real thing. Yeah. There was also one incident that stuck with her throughout her life. The first incidents of racial injustice that she remembered clearly. When she was 12, she was participating in a recital that her parents attended. They were made to sit in the back of the room to make way for white people to sit in the front. And young Eunice knew this was wrong and refused to perform until her parents were allowed to sit in the front. And they knew she meant business and they relented and the show went on as planned. Wow. Yeah. Good for her. But also, like, come on. Yeah. Basically. (laughs) But I'm, I'm certainly not defending it, but... This was fucking Jim Crow. Yeah. This is what it was. Yeah. It was bullshit. So you're right. That is exactly what it was. Yeah. So if you're angry, that's what it was. Yeah. Like, the her parents had a child in a recital. Right? The, like, the star of the recital. And they were like, no, you have to sit in the back. No, fuck you. I want to see my kid up front. Yeah. Jeez. This isn't... We don't have camcorders. We can't, like, zoom in on our yeah. phones. But this was the first time that she saw racism in action and knew that she could do something to change it yeah which was a real big influence on her yeah that's actually really insightful too that a child at her age could see something like that and be like i'm gonna do something yeah, about this is this. wrong so that's and I pretty need amazing to do something yeah this was the first instance of nina standing up for her rights as a black woman and the first time she realized her voice can make a difference this incident would become a huge influence on nina nina even in her adult life But she was a lonely child. She spent most of her time practicing classical piano, and that didn't leave much time to play with other kids. Right. But her dream was to be the first black classical pianist, 
And that required a lot of sacrifice, mm-hmm. mainly her entire childhood. Wow. Yeah, she didn't have, like, childhood friends or anything. Oh, that's really sad. Especially, too, because you'd think, well, at least she has a bunch of siblings. That would probably take up some yeah. time. But but while her siblings were out playing with other neighborhood kids, right. she, was she was inside practicing, practicing piano. Jeez, that sucks. Like, her, her closest friends were the two white ladies that were teaching her piano. Which... Which they were probably racist assholes, too, because they were two old white ladies oh, in the 40s. Oh, they probably thought they were white knighting her. Yeah. Oh, that's really obnoxious. I mean, I don't want to malign them. They could be very pure and sweet people. Could have been. I don't know. I really don't know. We don't know. So you know what? We'll leave that up to history books. I guess. I don't know. Yeah. But her teachers saw a ton of potential in her and really wanted her to be the best. They even started a fund for her continued education called the Eunice Wayman Fund. Wow. The fund was a success and it paid to send her to Juilliard in New York City for a year. Which is a big deal. Yeah, that's a big deal. Juilliard, is is it still around? Yes, but I can't imagine back then it was probably even more exclusive and harder to get into, more expensive. Yes. And I'm sure at that time the thought of a young black woman going there was out of this world yeah pretty much I'm she sure, had to be really good yeah not only not only a woman of color but a woman right you know i mean i'm sure it was better by then about women but uh, still questionable still questionable yeah because it was the what late 40s early 50s um, if she was this was after she was out of high school so probably so oh probably i would say late 40s early 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 50s, 50, okay. 51. Okay. After that year was over, she had great plans to go to the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. She auditioned for the school and it went great, but she was ultimately rejected. Hmm. It wasn't until six months later that she realized she wasn't accepted because she was black. Well, yeah. So that unfortunately checks out. Yeah, Juilliard accepted her. Curtis didn't. <sighs> the school later insisted this wasn't the case. But Nina was convinced of it, and the injustice of that rejection really stuck with her throughout her life. Because I just picture her, like, auditioning, doing really great, some, like, you know... To a bunch of white people. Right. Well, I just imagine after that, a basic white boy come up and, like, he's fine. Yeah. But they're probably like, well, we're going to take the white boy, because white boy. Right. And she's probably like, cool, guys. Cool, cool, cool. (laughs) Gotcha. Great. Anyway. So... This was a huge blow to her family. Her parents uprooted their entire family and moved to Philadelphia in preparation for Nina to go to Curtis. So not getting into the school affected everyone. That's awful. Everybody got fucked. Like, they thought she was a shoo-in. Right. I'm sure she should have been. She was an amazing classical pianist. She had already been at Juilliard for a year. Right? What's Curtis in comparison to Juilliard? Right. So, like... Everybody thought that she was going to get in. And when she didn't, everyone was like, well, what the fuck do we do now? I guess we're all just going to sit here and touch ourselves. Yeah, apparently. But she couldn't wallow in her anger. She had to go out and work to help support her family. So she got a job singing and playing piano at the Midtown Bar and Grill in Atlantic City. Oh. Because Philly and Atlantic City are very close. I mean, I guess. Close enough. Atlantic City is a terrifying ghost town. It, but it wasn't back then. It was the it was the the um, hopping place. Yeah, it was Las Vegas of the East Coast back then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> 
She'd never sung before. She had only ever really played piano. Oh. She never opened her mouth at all at wow. this point. All right. But the club owner insisted she had to sing if she wanted to keep the job. Oh, wow. So she started singing. And she sing pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. She incorporated pop songs, gospel, jazz, blues, and more into her performances. And she became kind of well-known for her distinctive voice. Oh, I mean, she has such a noticeable, distinct voice. Yeah. You hear a Nina Simone song, you know it's Nina Simone. Yeah, it's very deep. And yeah. It's, very, it's like Louis Armstrong. Like, you know... You're not going to question, oh, who is this singing? Unless, right. I mean, I guess if you don't know who Nina Simone is. And then yeah, in that case, you will ask. <laughs> and then someone's going to sit down and be like, all right, we're going to have a talk about Nina Simone. Yeah. But she also did a lot of traditional or, um, I guess, more average jazz numbers. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't Etta James. Like, she didn't have an Etta James voice. She wasn't even a very, you know, she wasn't a fantastic singer. No. Really? Um, she was a good singer. Yeah. But I she, think her her strength wasn't in her tone of her voice. It was it in was the delivery. In, yes. Yeah. Exactly. And and the distinctness of her voice. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she had a deep voice where most women really had like the very feminine, higher range voice. Kind of airy, wispy. Yeah. She yeah. had like a deeper voice that you right. you didn't really hear with jazz accompaniment and stuff. It's definitely more authoritative than most female singers. Yeah. She very much commands attention with her voice. Agreed. And this was when she changed her name to Nina Simone. Oh. And it wasn't just a couple random names she put together. She chose Nina because of Nina, which was a nickname her boyfriend at the time gave her. Aww. And she chose Simone after French actress Simone Signore, I think. Signore. Signore. Mm, sure. Who was in a French. Mo- <laughs> yeah, she was French. Who was in a movie Nina liked called... A uh, casque door? Sure! French. I, I don't know French for shit, so whatever. She changed her name not just because she needed a stage name, but also because she didn't want her family to know she was playing the quote-unquote devil's music at an Atlantic City bar. Oh, so she, I take it her parents, because they were very religious, very, did yes. not like jazz music. Yes. Got it. Yes. Mm, okay. <laughs> So it was kind of a way to disguise herself. Yeah. So if her name smart. was ever, like, if Nina Simone was on, like, a billboard or, like, a club Like a marquee. Thing, club marquee, mm-hmm. then if her parents happened to be driving through Atlantic City or something or read a newspaper, then they wouldn't know. Yeah. They're going to be like, Nina Simone? Who's she? And then she can say, oh, no, you don't want to see her. No, no, she no. sings the devil's music. <laughs> I'm going to go now. Okay, I gotta go to work. Yup. <laughs> Not singing the devil's music, that's mm. for sure. During her tenure in Atlantic City, she made a recording of I Loves You, Porgy from the musical Porgy, oh, Porgy and Bess. This song, despite not having any marketing push behind it, became a hit for Nina in 1959, going to number two on the R&B charts. Wow. Out of this sprang a record deal with Bethlehem Records, and her first record, Little Girl Blue, was released. Oh, wow. Okay. 1959. Yeah, I I didn't even realize that she was putting shit out that early. Yeah, I I just, I guess, I didn't realize that she just kind of, I don't want to say magically, but just almost like a record deal fell into her lap. Kind of. No, and I don't mean that she didn't work for it. Like, obviously, she works very, very hard. It's just... yeah. 
But I, it was just somebody recorded her somebody playing Somebody was smart that enough to hear live. that and say, she's good. Yeah. And was like, somebody needs to listen to this because, yeah, they did. But Bethlehem Records royally screwed her over. Oh, no way. A record company screwing over an artist. You yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She lost over a million dollars in royalties from Little Girl Blue because she foolishly sold the rights to the music back to Bethlehem Records for only (gasps) $3,000. Yeah. What? So did she only get $3,000 and they got a million? Mm -hmm. Shut up. Yeah. Oh my but god, damn she, it, record companies are the fucking worst. But also, she didn't even have a manager at this point. No. She didn't know what the fuck she was doing, but she should she have was, gotten a manager. But she was probably so pumped that somebody was that interested yeah. in her and wanted in, to do a record deal. In the 50s, $3,000 was, was a lot. lot of money. So, I get it. She she just wanted the money up front. She didn't understand the concept of royalties at that point. Yeah. But, but you know what's more money than $3,000? A million. A million. <laughs> a I'm million not, dollars look, is a lot more. I don't math too good, but, <laughs> but I'm going to tell you. But I know sure. a million is more than 3000 But even though she got screwed by the record company, she did find love around this time. Ooh. She met Andrew Stroud while performing at a bar in Atlantic City Ooh. after Nina stole some of his french fries. Oh, it's that's really cute. That's how you pick somebody up. Yeah, he was just sitting and like eating his hamburger and fries, and she came over and she was like, "I'm gonna take some of these." And, like took its French fries and then just started flirting with him. That's hot. Yeah, I want, I want, I want a game like that. Nina Simone. <laughs> you know, if you like, can meet a guy shoving French fries in his French fries in, in your, your mouth, and they're like, "Okay, I'm gonna date you," right? Perfect. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah, it doesn't get. Doesn't stay great, but we'll yeah. get into it. Oh no! Once they married in 1961, Andy abandoned his career as a police sergeant to manage Nina's career. Hmm. They bought a house in Mount Vernon, New York, and nine months later, their daughter Lisa was born. Shout out to Mount Vernon! Yeah, <laughs> oh, yo, you in Westchester? That's it. That's it. With Andy as her manager, her popularity soared. Her childhood dream of playing Carnegie Hall came true in 1963, but she couldn't stop herself from being self-deprecating and wrote to her parents that she was disappointing to them because she wasn't playing Bach. You can't... But you're at Carnegie Hall. Who cares what you're playing? You know, it just goes to show, no matter how well you're doing and how much you're achieving goals... It's real easy to make yourself feel like garbage. Yeah. And but that's also how you know you're not a sociopath. But Nina was really good at making herself feel like garbage. So. I know that feel. Yeah. I feel you, Nina. She also got a new record contract with Colpix Records, which proved significantly more beneficial to her than the contract with Bethlehem. Good. She recorded a ton of records for Colpix from 1959 to 1964 during some of her most prolific years. I can't even really name them all. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so many. And a lot of them are live albums. And oh, interesting. a lot of them just reuse the same songs from right. previous albums, which is typical of R&B, jazz, and like gospel Well, and this artists. is the time, too, like a lot of records might only have like four or five songs on it. Right. So, and once you have like a little cluster of songs, you record them. Right. And though Andy was a savvy manager, he worked Nina hard and she resented it and resented being away from her daughter so much. Oh. 
she started exhibiting temperament issues around this time. Like she'd snap at her band members and she'd even be disagreeable with the audience. Hmm. If anyone in the audience was talking or making noise as she was about to start a song, she would just sit there and wait until they were quiet, even if it was awkward. Uh. Sometimes she would ask the audience to be quiet. And if they didn't quiet down, she'd walk off the stage and the show was over. You know, though, like I get it. I kind of get it. But... I mean, maybe that's a bit much, but I do hate rude people that talk during a show. But don't Aaron Lewis it. We've talked about Aaron Lewis, lead singer of Stained, who recently (laughs) got pissed (laughs) off that people weren't stopping talking during his show and then made a comment about speaking English because this is America and then stomped off stage. See, though, she didn't do an Aaron Lewis. She didn't do that. Like, that's not a cute look on you, buddy. Yeah. But like... I get it. Yeah, it sucks if people are super loud. But if one person, like, sneezes, you don't need to, like, stomp off stage. All right. She might have been a little much about it. It's one thing when you got a heckler or just two people who are, like, not acknowledging the fact that you were at a show and maybe, like, shut your mouth. And and if you want to talk about your Aunt Susan, then you should probably get out and go somewhere and have a drink and talk Mm -hmm. about Aunt Susan, not do it in the middle of Nina Simone's set. Exactly. Yeah. All right, we're agreed then. (laughs) She also started exhibiting signs of depression and uncontrollable anger. People were walking on eggshells around her. She also developed insomnia, so she would take sleeping pills for that and then, quote, yellow pills to go on stage. Yellow pills? I don't know what pills exactly she was talking about, but they were prescribed by somebody. Well, when we talked about it with Johnny Cash, you know... you're, you know, even moderately famous. You go to a doctor, they're going to help you out and they're going to give you what you need so you can they perform. They will pretty much give you whatever you ask for. You got the money to pay for it? Great. Here you go. Exactly. But this meant she didn't have time to rest and rejuvenate herself. Yeah. That's kind of how that works a lot of times. Yeah. And basically, Andy was just working her like crazy. And it wasn't just her career he was pushing too far. It was Nina herself. He Hmm. psychologically abused her and he would physically beat her up, too, on top of constantly pushing her to work. Come on. In one particularly awful instance, she and Andy were at a club and a fan approached her and gave her a note. She didn't think anything of it and just automatically put the note in her pocket. Okay. Andy saw her take the note, and he immediately pulled her outside where he started beating her. Jesus, dude. She said he beat her all the way home, up the stairs, into their bedroom where he tied her up and (gasps) raped her. What the fuck? Yeah. Dude. This guy's a piece of shit. Fucking go stand in traffic. I fucking (laughs) hate you. Please. Like, what is your fucking problem? She's clearly got enough problems. She doesn't really need you being human garbage on top of that. And if he was getting also mad at her, like, psychological issues, you beating the shit out of her isn't fucking helping. Nope. Maybe if her psychological issues didn't start until you guys got married, maybe that could have had something to do with it. Mm, You think, asshole? Mm. Come on. But she hid at a friend's house for two weeks before Andy found her. When he did, he denied ever touching her. Of course he did. Insisting she just ran away unprovoked. Of course she did. But she went back to him, foolishly thinking he wouldn't do it again. Oh, but he's gonna do it again. Yes. 
It was pretty apparent that Andy was a garbage person, but Nina insisted he was the best manager she ever had. At this point, Nina had the career she always wanted. She was churning out albums nonstop and played show after show. She may not have been playing classical piano, but was making music that spoke to her and that audiences loved. And she was very talented and successful at it. But there was something missing and there was always something more Nina wanted. Everything changed on September 15th, 1963, with the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. This bombing was straight up an act of white supremacist terrorism. Yep. With four KKK members planting 15 sticks of dynamite with a timing device on the church, the resulting explosion killed four young girls and injured 22 others. Not only did this tragedy mark a turning point in the American Civil Rights Movement, but it marked a distinct change in Nina Simone's career. She was so outraged by the incident that she wrote a song called Mississippi Goddamn. Yep. And I think this is the song she is most well known for. Yeah. Yeah. It's got to be. At least one of them. Yeah. She's got it like was, a handful. And... It was like the first one that everyone like perked their ears up and was like, oh. Oh. Oh, this lady. Oh, she is, she's not taking shit anymore. Yeah. <laughs> this was Nina's first foray into civil rights music, and she immediately got people's attention. She explicitly called out the Alabama bombing incident mm-hmm. and the assassina- assassination of Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi, Mm. expressing how frustrated and angry she was that these racist attacks were happening. And maybe maybe I could be wrong, but I feel like she was referencing a lot of like the lynchings and hangings that have been going on in the South at the time, too, in that, right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, basically everything and just calling for it to fucking stop. Everything really came to a head with um, the bombing, but it definitely had been boiling up. Yeah. And by the way, when I was researching this part, um, I was reading up on the um, bombing and there were, was it four men that four members of the KKK that were the perpetrators of this crime. Okay. And Oh, let's see. One of them was convicted, but not until 1977. Yep. And, Two more were convicted, but not until 2000 and 2001. Yep. This happened in 1963. Yeah. 40 years later. Yeah. They weren't convicted until 40 years later. No. And then the fourth guy died in 1994, so he didn't even get get to be convicted. Yeah. That dude just walked free till the end of his fucking life. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I was like... We're not great about punishing white dudes for doing bullshit things to people of color. Turns out, still not great at it. Yeah. Maybe we've gotten a little better. Wouldn't say we're great at it. I'd say, like, maybe two instances out of about 50, maybe, go the way they should go. Maybe. Sometimes when we do research for this podcast... We get angry. (laughs) Well, and I feel like I want to buy just, like... A plastic tray that I can flip over repeatedly. Just to feel like... like I'm doing something. Like you're flipping a table and like, your because, anger is efficiently yeah. released. Yeah. But what I think what's interesting, too, about Mississippi Goddamn is the first time you listen to it, you don't necessarily pick up on... It's it's a anger. jaunty tune. It's a really jaunty kind of upbeat tune. Yeah. She's even kind of singing it on like an upswing tone. Mm-hmm. And then you really listen to the lyrics and you're like... Oh, this is real tongue-in-cheek, isn't it? Oh, 
She's oh, she's singing she's about serious. some shit. Yeah, and like good, but it, and I think that makes it a lot more just noticeable, and I think it just makes it stand out more for the point that she's trying to make. Yeah, because it's like people just expect everybody to just grin and bear and be like, "This is just how things are," but it yeah, isn't. Yeah, and she stop it. She up until this point, she hadn't really made. Um, she had always sung songs that celebrated blackness. Like, right. she had one song called Brown Baby, mm-hmm. um, which was a cover of somebody else's song that I can't remember right now. But um, she always played that song at mm-hmm. her shows. Oh. But she never really did any songs that were so angry. Like, yeah. Like, she was pissed and you knew it. <laughs> like, it sounds like she tried really hard to just, I'm not going to be negative. I'm going to be all positive And I'll just talk about my culture and my community in a positive light. Yeah. Really? Really? You're going to bomb a fucking yeah. church? All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm yeah. fucking getting mad. She, I'm singing my angry song now. Because she didn't want to be a stereotype. She didn't want to be the angry, angry black, black person woman. or whatever. Yeah. So she refrained from doing anything that was that was so aggressive. But she was fucking pissed. Yeah. And she had every right to express how pissed she was. Yeah. Still kind of not happy about that. Yeah. So DJs refused to play this song. Some, uh, nah, Of course they did. Nah. Some boxes of promotional records were sent back to the record label Broken in Two. <gasps> People weren't just mad that the song title had a swear word in it, which apparently back oh, then, goddamn, yes. was a swear word. Yes. Oh, no, I could totally see that, though, yeah. back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. But people were mad because this was a visibly pissed off black woman calling out racism and swearing about it. How dare she? Like, she was pissed off enough to fucking say goddamn about no it. No way. White people were clutching their pearls. Their white AF pearls. <laughs> And after playing at the Selma to Montgomery March in March 1965, Nina Mm -hmm. claimed that she got so angry singing Mississippi Goddamn that night that her voice cracked and it never returned to its original octave. You know, I did hear that story. Yeah. um, It's it's crazy that I never really noticed a difference, but I don't know Nina Simone's discography so well to be able to tell. Yeah. But, I mean, it could also be a mental thing, too, I wonder. Yeah. I mean, I could I could understand if it did. Yeah. I'd be pissed, too. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm giving it to her. I think either way, whether it's mental or physical, it makes sense. Yeah. You get to a certain point. I mean, this is two years after the bombing, and she's still singing this song with as much, if not more, fervor than she was before. Mm-hmm. So here you go. I'm still singing this. I'm st- We're still st- dealing especially, with the same bullshit. Especially because she was at one of the most important yes. active... or um protests and marches in the civil rights movement exactly so So of course you know what like yeah i'm kind of tired just hearing all this i'm like (laughs) oh god we're really bad at this yeah because this really isn't that long ago it really wasn't 50 years ago yeah it's not not even guys it's wounds are still pretty fresh yep some people like to get real uppity about it and i'm like guys 60s were not that long ago they really weren't yeah. I mean, my parents were well alive and married and all that shit during the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, Nina finally found her calling. She could finally show people how she'd been feeling for years and years, and she could make them listen. Once she realized she could create such emotion 
and such a huge reaction in people, she knew that activism was what she was born to do. And what better way to get your point across than through music? Yeah, of course. Mississippi Goddamn was released on Nina's first album on her new label, Phillips Records. She wrote it in a, quote, rush of fury, hatred, and determination. But it wouldn't be her last activist song. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, once you get the... Once, once you get the bug her, in you. Yep. And she found, like, you find the right tracks that you're supposed to be on, just go with them. Yeah. Let that inspiration flow through you. On the same album was the song Old Jim Crow, which oh, yeah. challenged Jim Crow laws and called for them to be abolished. These songs and all the ones that came after resonated with the black community. But as her notoriety as an activist songwriter rose, the rate of her, her musical output slowed. Oh, no way. Yeah. What? Yeah. Did white record execs and like radio disc jockeys not want to hear her music? Yeah. But she still continued to put out important songs. Good. Like 1966's Four Women. And this described four black women of differing backgrounds and um, how they're treated in their respectful communities, okay. I guess. So they were four female archetypes. The first was Aunt Sarah, who was supposed to be a slave. The oh. second was Sephronia, who was of mixed race and caught between two worlds. Okay, of. yeah, yeah. The next was Sweet Thing, which who was a prostitute, which she's yeah. she's a black woman, but white people like her because she gives them sexual gratification. <sighs> and then the last one is Peaches, who is the embittered black woman. Mm-hmm. So some people also um, didn't like this one because they thought that it perpetuated these um, stereotypes of black women. But at the same time, it's almost it's a celebration of the different kind of black women that are out there. Right. Because I'm going to assume that most, you know, white people assume that black women are just one way. Right. And they or probably have no white are, are the, the same. same. And they don't understand. Like, come on. We're all human. Everybody's different. Yeah. Nobody's personality is the same. Right. Chill out. And I I don't think that highlighting four different kinds of quote unquote black women right. um is stereotyping anybody. No, I in fact I think it's the opposite of stereotype in the sense that she's saying like look at all these different kinds of women. Right. And she's not saying these are the only types of black women. Right. These are just some of the types of black women. There are so many out there. That feels real nitpicky to me. Did Tumblr exist in the 60s? Because this <laughs> It only existed in people's minds. Tumblr was just the Rolodex of people's tiny little brains. I guess. Basically the same as Tumblr now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she continued to perform and record, but that almost took a back seat to her activism. She began mingling in activist circles, becoming friends with Martin Luther King, of course, Malcolm X, Langston wow. Hughes, and Lorraine Hainsbury, who are all prominent figures in the black activist community. But she didn't necessarily follow the nonviolent protest teachings of Martin Luther King. Oh. She started becoming more aggressive in her beliefs after many of her friends died or were assassinated. Malcolm X was assassinated in February 1965, and only one month before that, Nina's good friend Lorraine Hainsbury passed away from cancer. After Lorraine's death, Nina wrote the song To Be Young, Gifted, and Black as a tribute to her. 
The music was a celebration of being a strong and proud person of color and expressed the need to teach young black children that it's okay to be who they are. Yeah. It was almost a gentle way of celebrating blackness, but in her daily life, Nina was aggressive when it came to activism. She viewed American society as a cancer that needed to be exposed before it could be cured. Yeah, she definitely followed Malcolm X more than Martin Luther King. Okay. Definitely. I mean, you know, everybody's different strokes, different folks. Yeah. And... America was actively suppressing black rights and it needed to stop now. And the only way to do that with was to counteract with violence. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't alive. You can do <laughs> what you gotta do, man. I mean, I get why why they would want to do that, but I don't think it would have been as effective. I think we can still relate to that today. I mean, sometimes I get real nihilistic about the stuff that we have to deal with. Yeah. And I mean, I get it. Things definitely could be worse. But sometimes, some days I just feel like, you know what? You know what? Maybe th- we just need, maybe we just need, like, to get rid of certain people. I mean, of course, I would never go through with anything like that. And I don't yeah. genuinely believe that. But everybody has their times where they're just done. Yeah. I mean, everybody has the thought of, well, if somebody would just assassinate this one. Then maybe then we'd maybe be okay. maybe it would be all right. Um, but I mean, n- don't. That's not yeah. the route to go. And violence and death and all that shit yeah. is not the answer. However, but, everyone has that yeah. moment but at least once a week in this extreme culture of gaslighting that we have now. Yeah, any kind of violent protest would just be used against them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't. I really don't think that violence in on our side <laughs> is a good idea because it's it's just it's not going it's not going to be spun the way that they want it to go. Right. It's right. not. But it's also so easy to get caught up in the, you know, I'm sick of us being the good guys. I'm sick of playing the good yeah. guy. Like I'm can, so sick can we of- just like take if we all band together, can we just take over? Right. Can we be like the army of the dead in the Battle of Pelennor Fields? <laughs> yeah. And I'm just fine with like that. hop off the boat and fucking overrun everybody and take down all the Oliphants? Right. I mean, come on. Return of the King, guys. We can return of the King we this shit. We can return of the King this shit. <laughs> and I think we try to, but then like halfway along the way, Tumblr's a thing and you're like, Guys, you're ruining it. Stop. Stop it. Stop. (laughs) But yeah, I can understand how, especially in that time, to be like, I'm done. I'm done being the nice person. I'm done rolling over. I'm done trying to use positivity. It hasn't worked. But you know what got there? Well, like in Nina Simone's probably, but you know what got people's attention? When I was angry. Yeah. For better or for worse, her being angry got people's attention. True. So, you know what? Maybe. All press is good press. But, I mean, there's a difference between shouting when you're angry and stabbing when you're stabbing when you're angry. So there is a difference. One's gonna bring you to jail. Yeah, and one just means might bring you to jail. Depends on where you are. True, and it depends on what color you are. We are getting real political. Yeah, we are getting real political in this episode. (laughs) I'm like half apologetic, but not really. This is all really important to her story. It is. It's it's important to her music. important to all of our stories because her story doesn't get told enough and Mm -hmm. it's very important 
to all of us. Yeah. Not just the black community, but to all of us. Like, we, we can need, all fucking learn from this. We all need to be really well aware of what happened. Yes. What happened. Yes. And that especially, it wasn't that long ago. Especially white people. We need to understand this story. Yeah. We need to understand what happened so we're not fucking dickwads for the rest of our lives. Yeah, guys. Let's just not be dickwads. <laughs> Anyway. But anyway, wow. Sorry about that tangent. So, we can continue. <laughs> so she also advocated for a separate state for people of color. Hmm. And she really wanted to join the extremist groups, but she wouldn't because her husband refused to let her. Oh. He understood that her outspokenness made booking her booking her for shows difficult because she only wanted to play activist songs, yeah. which is her prerogative. Yeah, no, it's her. That's her thing now. Television shows that Patti LaBelle and Aretha Franklin were on, she wasn't allowed to perform on them because of her reputation. You know, I always wondered why I there wasn't more public appearances by there weren't. It I'm was, sorry. Yeah, Let me was... redo that grammatically correct. <laughs> I always wondered why there weren't more public appearances by Nina Simone. Yeah. And now I realize it's because of her activism and her outspokenness. And I didn't I'm gonna be full 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 up about this. I thought that she was around a little earlier than them and maybe that was why. Mm-mm. No, she's around the same this time. This was like Prime and yeah. Sullivan time. Yeah. And as far as I know, she wasn't on his show. Yeah, I I don't I don't remember an Ed Sullivan Nina Simone like, clip on YouTube. So yeah. Or like American not. Bandstand or anything. I don't recall her ever being on them right that's and that's really interesting so it's like you know it's very much a well we're gonna expose and celebrate people of color a little bit like as much as makes us comfortable but we're not gonna put on people like nina simone as long as they act kind of white yeah then like as long as they act in a way that's comfortable for white people right in a non-threatening way yeah but to everybody else nina simone was somewhat threatening right Arguably, she was kind of threatening. She kind of was, but, like, I totally understand (laughs) why. I understand. I understand. Totally. But it is also bullshit that, like, I wonder if they gave her more of a mouthpiece in the public eye, maybe she wouldn't have to have been so aggressive. Right. Right. And she wouldn't have had to do all of that, like, outspokenness at her shows. Yeah. It's a real egg in the chicken. Chicken and the egg. There you go. Egg and the chicken, chicken and the egg kind of scenario. Like... Well, what caused what? Was she aggressive because, like, no one will listen to her or no one listened to her because she's aggressive? Both. Yeah. There you go. She may not have been getting a whole lot of promotion, but she was still selling albums and still selling out performances. But personally, things were only getting worse. Mm. By the late 60s, it became apparent that Nina was battling some heavy psychological issues. Her mood swings were off the charts and people were scared of her. During her periods of lucidity, she would be depressed and suicidal. And Andy, being a fucking D-bag, didn't help the situation as he often told her that he'd be relieved if she killed him herself. Come oh, on! And he continued to beat her. God damn it! Can Superb. you just, like, go ahead and make yourself a cocktail of bleach and broken glass and just chug it? Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. I think we should call that the Andrew Stroud yeah. Cocktail? Yeah. I'm going to make that a thing. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, guys. <laughs> <sighs> in 1966, she toured with uh, Bill Cosby, <laughs> which turned out to be a mistake in more Whoa. ways than one. <laughs> she became erratic on the last night of the tour, talking gibberish and putting black shoe polish in her hair before the show. Oh, huh, okay. 
And instead of, like, taking her to a hospital or anything, Andy walked her out on stage and sat her down. And she performed, and she just wasn't herself during the show. Clearly, something was very, very wrong. But he didn't really do anything. He just wanted her to perform. That's... And at the same time, I stared at you. No one will know this unless I tell you. I stared at you agape for a good solid 20 (laughs) seconds while you told that. Yeah. However, I can't even really say I'm that surprised. She's a woman. It's the 60s. She's mental his cash cow. Is, yeah. Mental illness doesn't exist in yeah. most people's minds. And he probably thought she was being an irrational woman. Supposedly, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder in the 60s, but I don't know what they did really to treat it. She and was just on sleeping pills and whatever it was she was on to go perform. Come on. Yeah, and I don't know what others would even really understand about bipolar back then you you don't talk about it you especially didn't talk about it in the black community it was still a taboo thing it's kind of still a taboo thing to talk about sometimes so unfortunately yes mental illness is taboo in general but from what i have gathered through my own stories that have been told to me that it's still kind of taboo in the black community it's just it's one of those things where it's like well you just need to get yourself up by the bootstraps and carry on and pretend like nothing's wrong right because that's what we've always had to do in the face of every hardship we've ever had right and that's and that's sad (sighs) that's sad and it's just like it shouldn't have to even be a thing anymore but um but yeah it just I'm sure he also, the first thing he probably asked when she was diagnosed is like, well, can she still perform? I doubt yeah. he cared all that much. Like, that what do she... we have to do to get her to perform every night? Right. I doubt condition. he really gave a shit about her mental well-being. No, not at all. It's if you beat, here's the thing, you beat your wife, I'm going to assume you don't care about their mental right. well-being. But also, you know what doesn't fucking help her mental well-being? Is it beating you her? You beating her! Is it the beating? You beating her! Stop beating your wife! Anyway, take a sip of beer and calm down. So, two years later, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Songwriter and Nina's bassist, Gene Taylor, wrote the song Why the King of Love is Dead, a beautiful tribute to the civil rights activists that became one of Nina's most well-known singles. But after Martin Luther King died, Nina was fed up. She's done. I don't blame her. She was fed up with her marriage. Her fear, her frustration, and anger towards the United States' lack of concern and responsibility in the face of racism, and also with the state of her career. She now believed that Mississippi Goddamn had actually harmed her career and gave her an unwarranted reputation as a difficult and angry woman. She felt like she was being punished for speaking out against injustice. I mean, she was. Yeah. (laughs) She was. She was right. She's not wrong. Yeah. So she left. In September 1970, Nina up and flew to Barbados. Whoa. Oh, okay. Yeah. She left her wedding ring behind, and Andy interpreted that as their marriage being over. Although she never communicated that directly, she did expect Andy, who was still her manager, to tell her when she needed to come back to perform. But he didn't. Hmm. Yeah. I have a really hard time. This is probably the only time in this episode I'm having a hard time siding with her on that. If you you might have needed to write that out in a note, like, yeah, hey, you, we're divorced, but like at the same time, you're gonna still have to be my manager. Yeah, Thanks. You kind bye. of have to say that. Yeah, because I mean, and here's the thing: 
fucking good for you. Yeah. Leave his stupid, dumb, I hate you, bleach drinking ass behind. <laughs> but Fuck also, that guy. He could have been like, hey, so what does this mean? But no, he, he didn't, because I don't think he gave a shit about her. But from her. what I gather, like, they just never really talked again. Right. And I mean, that's the thing is, he was probably so butthurt that he she just up and had yeah. the audacity to leave him yeah. and just leave her ring. That he probably was like, all right, whatever, I don't need this bitch. Yeah. But I mean, I got most of this information from some, like, articles online and mm-hmm. her autobiography, but also there is um, a documentary on Netflix called What Happened, Miss Simone? Yeah. Um, and they do a lot of in-person interviews with him. Oh. He is such a contemptuous piece of shit. Yeah. During that whole thing, like, no, all this shit is her fault. She fucking did all this shit. I was a great manager. And I'm like... I just want to reach through the TV, the TV and fucking wring your shitty neck yeah. so hard. Yeah. He sounds like the biggest piece of human garbage yes, to have absolutely. ever existed. He was like, I am the greatest. I did. I I am responsible for Nina Simone's career. She just fucked everything up. I'm air flipping a table right <laughs> skeet, now. Skeet, skeet, you piece of shit. I fucking can't. <laughs> Is he still alive? Uh, I don't know. I really don't know. Probably not. You know what I was talking about earlier about that whole, like, sometimes the evil party creeps in, like, sometimes you just got to do bad things. Yeah. I'm not (laughs) going to. It's fine. I'm just angry. And that's what anger does to you. Mm Mm-hmm. Case in point. She lived in Barbados for a few years and then eventually uprooted again and moved to Liberia, a small country in Africa. Nina loved liberia good this was like the place she had always dreamed of like you know how she was really into a separate state for the black community yeah this was it yeah she said it was the place she'd always dreamed of going to like it was her true home liberia is an african country next to the ivory coast that was settled by the american colonization society and former american slaves so naturally nina felt a deep connection to this place of course When she first moved to Barbados, Nina effectively abandoned her daughter, Lisa, to live with Malcolm X's surviving family, who were their neighbors in Mount Vernon. Okay. Huh. But when Nina moved to Liberia after living in Barbados, she called for Lisa to come live with her. Okay. So when Lisa was in seventh grade, Nina brought her to Liberia. Oh, she's real young to be doing this to her, though. Maybe, like, don't be so wishy-washy with your... But at the same time, it's like, what kind of stability did Lisa have at this point? Like, her well, dad was really not in the right. picture anymore. She was living with Malcolm X's surviving well, family. I guess that's like, what I mean. Like, like, wow, it sounds like you're really shoving your kid around. Yeah, they kind of... Neither one of them kind of really cared much. Huh. So this was kind of the first time where she... Like, after she had left for for Barbados... Yeah. Where she made it seem like she cared about Lisa. No, I mean, I mean, it's good she brought her to Libya. I'm just saying, like, sounds like well, you really... Oh. Well, at first, Lisa thought it was great, but after a year, things started changing. Oh. That first year, Lisa spent most of her time with another Liberian family while her mom was on the road doing shows. Oh. But as soon as Nina came home and settled into their life together, her mental il- illness started to rear its ugly head again. Mm. Nina began beating her daughter regularly, oh, often in front of other people. 
She also verbally abused her and tried manipulating her on many occasions. And the abuse was so bad that Lisa became suicidal. But oh, before my she, God. But before she could harm herself, she went back to the U.S. to live with her father. While Lisa was living with her, Nina just about abandoned the piano and said she hated it. It was something that brought her a lot of prosperity and gave her a voice, but it was also her undoing in a way. But she had to make money somehow, but she refused to go back to the U.S. So instead, she moved to Switzerland and began playing shows around Europe. But you could tell she just wasn't really into it anymore. She appeared bored and flat and like she was mentally somewhere else. So was she still doing her jazz standards? Yeah, she was still doing like the same stuff that I she had always figured, done. Like, maybe like you go into Europe, like just go back to your classical. At least you don't have to like really sing or be on. You just have to be a really good pianist. Yeah, but people wanted to see her songs. The, yeah, they wanted to see Mississippi Goddamn and Four Women and I Loves You Porgy and all that stuff. And she's probably so over it by this point. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'll yeah. let her have it. I can't even imagine. Like, this is the 70s at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're probably like, not really, you're probably kind of over into it. it. She's over, over it. it. Yeah. You're like, clearly my influence didn't do anything. These songs didn't do anything. And just singing them. And if you hate Mississippi Goddamn and you're over yeah. the piano, it's She's, just like, but you're this sitting is... there and hating it and just doing it because you have to. Yeah. She has to because she needs to make money. And this right. is all she knows how to do. Yeah. She did. She had nothing else. She's doing this literally her entire life. Yeah, she has spent her entire life training to be a musician. That's all she knows. Right. So by the time the 1980s rolled around, life had become unbearably difficult for Nina. Mm. Her mental illness was controlling her. She barely had any money. She had no notoriety anymore, good or bad, and no family around her. She was living in a filthy apartment and dressing in rags, and her mental instability was getting worse. Oh, no. In 1985, she fired a gun at a record executive that she accused of stealing her royalties. Okay. In another incident, she forced a shoe store clerk to take back a worn pair of shoes at gunpoint. Okay. In another episode, she demanded royalty payments from her friend, songwriter Janice Ian, for a song of Janice's that Nina recorded. Was this also at gunpoint? No. (laughs) But when Janice Ian refused, Nina ripped a payphone off the wall. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. That's rage. Yeah. That is rage. Her friends and former band members were worried about her, so they moved her to Amsterdam and made her see a doctor. He diagnosed her with bipolar disorder and prescribed a relatively new mood-stabilizing medication. Okay. And she understood finally that if she didn't go along with the doctor's orders, she wouldn't survive this. So with the help of her friends, they made sure she took her medication. Okay. But the meds had side effects, like all drugs do. Yeah. She developed a facial tic and had a noticeably shuffling gait. The side effects of the medication were so heavy-handed that the doctor even warned her that eventually she'll lose her motor skills, including not being able to play piano or sing what anymore. What the fuck drug was this? It, 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 they called it, like, Trulium or something like, like that. I get it, it's the 80s, but, like, what? I think it was some kind of form of lithium. Like, Oh, my God. Oh, okay. That actually that makes sense. Yeah, it was... Wow! I, I couldn't really tell what they were saying in the documentary, and I tried to look it up, but... I couldn't find anything. It starts with a T, TR or something. Doctors, phone in. What's going on here? It's like Trulium or something like that. 
All I can think of is like truly seltzers. <laughs> just drink a bunch of these yes. hot seltzers. You're going to be just fine. It's great. Make you feel great. I mean, it makes me feel really good until the next morning <laughs> when I wake up and I feel like an asshole. Like total garbage. But I mean, the drugs worked. She was lucid and she was performing again, even touring throughout the 90s. But she still wouldn't come back to the U.S. for good. Her last performance in the U.S. was in Newark, New Jersey in 1998, during which she told the audience that they'd have to go to France to see her again because she wasn't coming back. You know what? I don't blame her. That's an appropriate place to make that statement, too. Yeah. I'm never coming back to New Jersey. this. In 1993, she settled in southern France, which is where she passed away in her sleep on April 21st, 2003. Oh. She had been suffering from breast cancer for several several years, oh. but continued to work, work through it up until the end. Her ashes were scattered over several African countries and were even incorporated into a statue of Nina in her hometown of Tryon, North Carolina. Oh, that's really nice. Yeah. I mean, in the sense, not that she's dead. That sucks that she's dead. <laughs> yeah. But what's really nice is like how they thoughtful they were with her remains. Yeah. But what what drives me insane is that <laughs> for everything she did, I mean, I certainly cannot speak for the black community, but right as far as white people go, <laughs> we can talk for white people. Yeah. <laughs> as far as white people go, because we are the whitest people I know. Yeah. <laughs> Considering everything she did for activism and Mm -hmm. for the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s she doesn't really get her dues and i think that's because right off the bat as soon as mississippi goddamn was released right she was immediately branded an angry black woman right and that's not right yeah she was angry but it was like it was an anger it was an anger that she shared with everybody yeah. in her community. Yeah. It wasn't just her. It's not like she was losing her fucking shit and being unreasonable. Yeah. She just wanted what a lot of people like her wanted. Yeah. And it, that's not something that's crazy to ask for. It's it's sad because I, I'm not going to lie, like, I didn't know half of the shit. Yeah. I didn't even know half the shit. I always looked at Nina Simone as like, oh, she's very important. She's a very important singer-songwriter. Yeah, and people and revere like, her, but I don't know why. Right. And I had no idea that she was an angry black woman. I yeah. thought like I thought people looked upon her as like, she's like classy. Like when you want to put on well, your classy jazz standards. She is. She 100% is. Right. She is a fuck, was a fucking classy woman. Yeah. I didn't even get into her like fashion. Oh, and no, how she every, good. everything she wore meant something, mm. whether it was reflecting her African roots right. or traditional African headwear or the jewelry that she wore or the fact that after after like in the mid 60s, she just went to an Afro. Right. For a good reason. So everything she did mm. was for her community and to raise awareness. And... All the while she was doing that, she was putting out all of these classics and all of these very classy jazz numbers and very classy R&B hits and doing it very, very well. Yeah. No, she definitely was. And doing it respectfully. Yep. And she, you know, even even whiteies liked her. Mm Mm-hmm. And we're like down with what she did until she started saying like, but can you stop killing black people? And then white people are like, oh, we don't like you anymore. You're so angry. Why are you so angry? We can't play you on the radio. You're very angry. Stop it. So, but I just, I didn't know. 
I didn't know about her mental illness. I didn't know. I had no idea about the severity of her mental illness at all. I didn't know she left the States like that. I didn't realize, like, how aggressive she was in her, just kind of her activism. So that was all really, really eye-opening. Yeah. And, wow, we really don't know enough about her and don't celebrate her enough. Yeah, not at all. I mean, there's, you know, there's plenty of people we should be celebrating, but she needs to be up there a little higher, I feel like. I think we need to, like... Boost her up a little bit, like, hey, guys, Nina Simone, though. I mean, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X did a whole lot, and they were icons of right. the civil rights movement, but she should be on the same level. Yeah, because she's she working with them, hand yeah. in hand. Absolutely. And I really appreciate, and I think we're going to cover this a lot in the next few episodes to come, musicians who see that they can send a message, and they, they see that they can let people know things through their art. And, yeah. they, and they use that to their advantage in a positive way. And that's why it always pisses me off when politicians are like, oh, well, musicians and actors should shut the fuck up about their political views. Like, no, that's the whole point of music. That's the whole yeah. point of, you know, having this pedestal that other people don't get to have. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, politicians just don't like it because. Because they're influential. And they're going to point the thing, like the bullshit out that they're doing. Yeah. And nobody likes that. Yeah. I mean, it's like, everybody's like, oh, why are you calling me out, though? That's ignorant. Yeah. Don't do that. When you're being called out, that's, you don't like that shit. People don't want to be called out, which, too bad for you, my friend. Too bad for you. Too bad, friendo. Oh, jeez. But yeah, I'm I'm really glad that uh, you covered her. That was good. And I've always, like, she did feeling good, right? Uh, she was the original on that? I don't think she was the original. Most of her songs were not originals. Oh, that's fair. Um, but like Mississippi Goddamn was an original. Right. Four Women was an original. Um, her her version of Feeling Good is pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I I did like the my favorite is the cover of the hair song, which yeah. this woman makes me made me like a song from a musical. You know what? That is how powerful she is. That's amazing. <laughs> I hate musicals, and she made me like that song from Hair. So yeah, that's that is goddamn amazing. Yeah, it's Mississippi goddamn amazing. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. That's a good one. I do yeah. all right. I do all right. All right. Well, geez, thanks guys. Thanks for tuning in. I hope y'all learned a lot and enjoyed yourselves, and are gonna go out and listen to her music and celebrate her. Tell your friends and family to listen to this not just because we want you to listen to us but also like this is a really good story and not one that gets told enough yeah she's a very powerful woman with powerful music and she deserves to be celebrated she does and what was the documentary is on netflix right yeah it's called um what happened miss simone yeah i you know i remember they suggested that to me and i just haven't gotten around to seeing it yet so i need to do that there is also a a biopic about her biopic <laughs> called I, I think it's just called nina but this is the one that came out a few years ago and zoe saldana played her and people oh, lost their minds because right. they were like she's a light-skinned lady yeah. and also yeah. you you put blackface on a black lady <gasps> oh what yeah they made her skin darker i don't remember that but ooh, that's awkward yeah. but also she's like nina is a very traditionally a quote-unquote black-looking woman. Like, like she, for what that means? For, whatever, for what that means. Like she, I don't had, know. She had a broad nose, broad lips, um, a very African-shaped She's bone African. structure. Because she is African. Yeah. Um, 
And she celebrated that. And that's something that should be celebrated. Oh, so I see. Like, so putting somebody, Zoe yeah. Saldana in that role who has very slim features, mm. people were pretty pissed off. But Understandably I mean, so, but... That's Hollywood for you, yeah. too, is like... But even um, Lisa, um, Nina's daughter, mm. was like, I ain't mad at Zoe Saldana. Like, she did a great oh, no. job. I mean, like, here's the thing. She is a great actress. Yeah. For what it's worth. I mean, I don't know shit about movies, but from what I've seen her in, I do like her. Yeah. So uh, I would still her, watch right, it. It's not her fault. Yeah, I'd still watch it. It's Hollywood's fault for being stupid. Yeah. <laughs> blackface and blackface. Is that? It huh. is a thing. It is a thing. Interesting. Anyway. I think that's a that is a perfect place to put a bow on it. <laughs> right there, that's good. Yep. Anyway, again, thanks for listening. And uh, if you guys really enjoyed us and really enjoyed this and want to help us out, what really helps us is leaving us some sweet five star reviews on iTunes. Do gets it. Gets us bumped up into them charts, and then people notice us, and then more people listen to us, and then you know that's cool for us. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> And also, too, if you want to go ahead, you can follow us on the social medias. We got ourselves on Twitter at Rock Candy Pod. And we also have ourselves on Facebook and Instagram at Rock Candy Podcast. And, of course, the website, www.rockcandypodcast.com. You can comment on things. You can tweet at us. You can comment on our Instagram posts. You can send us an email. Like, honestly, we're on our social medias. We check them out. Tell us we're pretty. Honestly, it's been a rough <laughs> month. I would I wouldn't mind being told I'm pretty. But also to tell us that you like what we're doing and if there's something like you want us to talk about or if there's something that we didn't really cover in an episode. I mean, we've had a couple people on some episodes be like, "Hey, but you didn't talk about this." And I'm like, "Oh." I mean, yeah. there is a lot of information in the world and we're always looking to learn more. So. And there's always stuff that we wanted to talk about and just couldn't. Didn't get around to. Because we didn't have the time. Yeah, seriously. We try to keep this as short as we can, which is still pretty long. It doesn't always work out that way. It does but not always work out. But, you know. But, yeah, I mean, we appreciate what you guys have to say. We're mm-hmm. not going to shoot you down. Exactly. So toss us some things because that's all fun and games. I don't know. Whatever. Okay. All right. I don't know. The beer's, <laughs> Let's go. The beer's Let's starting go. to hit me. Let's get the fuck out of here. All right, guys. <laughs> We'll see you next week, and until then, party on, Ashley. Party on, Maggie. And party on, you crazy kids out there. Balls out. Thank you. Thank you.